We are joined today by Kelly Palmer. She is a Charlotte native. She is a community advocate. Thank you so much for coming on. We are so happy to have you here. Thank you guys for asking me. I love um, talking about Charlotte and the great things that are part of this city. So I'm grateful to be here. Awesome. We're glad to have you. So um, we'll get started with just like some questions. Okay. So Kelly, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of what you love about Charlotte and maybe some things in the city that you're passionate about. Sure. So like you guys said, um, I was born and raised in Charlotte um, and I've lived here for most of my life, even though I did leave for a time. I'm grateful to be back in the city and call it my home um, just because I feel like there are a lot of great people here. It's beautiful here. It's clean here. Um, There are definitely things that could shift. And so uh, one of my passions and the work that I'm doing is around making wellness and healing spaces available to Black and Indigenous people of color here in Charlotte, but in other places too, um, because there is something called race-based stress and trauma. And a lot of research shows that not having tools to navigate that can be leading causes in heart disease and cancer and other mental health challenges. And so we're just trying to create spaces where Black and Indigenous people of color can come together and have access to things like yoga and meditation and therapy and group talks and education um, that doesn't have any type of barrier in terms of cost. So all of our offerings are free, but we also are committed to making sure that our teachers and facilitators are making a living wage. So we pay all of them for those offerings and we run mostly off of grants and donations from other people. Um, We're in a very interesting time because you're seeing a lot of racism and white supremacy being exposed. It's not like it wasn't always happening or that Black and Indigenous people of color weren't experiencing it, but we lived in an unsustainable way where we could ignore the suffering of others. And that's shifting, um, which makes me feel inspired, but it's put us in a unique position where A lot of Black people especially are used to navigating the undercurrent of racism, but it feels like a lot for it to be in your face and for the leader of your nation to be promoting it and aligning himself with it. And so we are deeply in our work of trying to help people navigate a pandemic and also ongoing struggle through racism and white supremacy that... um, you know, we're, it's very interesting. I'm very interested every time I turn on the television to see like some of the shifts that are happening in the laws, but also some of just the plain hate and ugliness that's being unearthed, whether it's on like social media or on TV. And what we have to think about is that Black people are, you know, sad and unemployed and all the other things that white people are in this time because of the pandemic, people are dying, but black people are dying in a disproportionate way, especially in the city of Charlotte from COVID. And then on top of it, you have protests, continued state sanctioned violence, protesters being arrested and treated unfairly. And all of that is heavy when you also log onto social media and people you work with, grew up with and live with are saying things that dismiss your experience or that are just outright startling because of the levels of racism that they were hiding under smiles and hellos and your work quarter. And like all of that stress is a lot. And so 
we're just grateful to have the resources to be able to offer um, at this point weekly classes where we're offering different things in spaces that are only for black people or indigenous people of color where they can connect to these practices and there's no cost. I know that was a lot of words. <laughs> no, it's, it was great. There were so many issues that I was just so unaware of. I've only lived in, we've only lived in Charlotte for almost a year and just were so I hate to say like blissfully in ignorant and just didn't know. And we did an episode. Our last episode was just kind of educating ourselves about what's gone on in the history here. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, I mean, it's great. The work that you guys are doing and it's really like a shame that people have taken, it's taken 2020 for people to finally wake up and see that this is not, this is not a new issue. This is something that's been happening for years and years on end. Right. Um, so I, I feel think, like um, I'm just, it's great to acknowledge that you didn't, like it wasn't something that you had to think about. And I'm just hoping that what we're seeing in this moment is more than like, not, not saying you directly, but like that it's not performative. Cause right now it's like people are afraid to be called racist or to say something problematic. And I can understand it because there's a lot of shame. Like we all know to be a racist is bad unless you're just like mentally ill. Like most deep racists are, they like, that all the cylinders are not firing but most people know like I don't want to be called racist that's why when someone calls them a racist they like get really defensive and they're not like yeah I am you know what I mean? and so it takes um some bravery on the part of white white people and white presenting people to acknowledge that hey I've overlooked this and I'm just hoping that it moves forward into like constant and steady action and shifts the same as we see around other big issues like consent or like the Me Too movement. It like, that was easy for people to understand and lash onto and you saw people start to shift, not necessarily in all the ways that they should, um, but it still continues and is moving forward. And I hope the same is true for Black Lives Matter and just the treatment of Black and Indigenous people all over the world. Cause it's what we're seeing, even just in our city is a culmination of what's happening all over the world, not just here. Totally. Yeah. Um, how did you find Sanctuary in the City? How did you get involved? What's kind of your story with the organization? Um, so I, um, I was sharing with you guys before the call started that I owned a hair salon. And I was, I would use that space to organize things for our community education classes. Um, it was more, it was more than a salon. That was one of our hashtags when we post on social media, we're more than a salon. And I started um, myself and my business partner and our staff, we started taking yoga classes from one of our clients. It was just like a barter that we were doing. And I really started to enjoy yoga a lot. I initially went into it for like the fitness of it, not realizing that it's like a lived practice with this philosophy that's thousands and thousands of years old. And so I started practicing and my clients would be like, oh, this is great. I wish that I could do yoga, but yoga spaces don't seem friendly or inviting to me. Like, I don't want to go and be the only black person. And, you know, if you haven't had that experience, you can't really understand how it feels to go into a space where they're not even marketing to you. None of the teachers look like you. None of the other students look like you. It's very much a feeling of not 
like you don't belong in that space. And so I decided to become a yoga teacher because I wanted black people to see another black person doing yoga and have the ability to go to a black teacher's class. And from there, I connected with Christy, who's one of the other board members here at Sanctuary. And she and I had a vision of opening a physical space here in Charlotte to be able to offer not just yoga and meditation, but like spaces for black birth workers to hold free birthing classes and spaces for people to gather to talk about parenting or like when there are protests, the hub for protesters so that they know they can come and be in this space. And the sad reality here in Charlotte is that all of the neighborhoods that are historically black or brown are being gentrified. And every time we would look at a location or try to pick a location, we were met with the obstacle that in five to 10 years, the people we want to serve won't even have access to this space and we might not even be able to afford to stay. And so we just started looking at how we could disrupt some systems around um, nonprofits and how funds are distributed to folks. And we started stepping away from having a physical space and leaning into how can we file for grants and um, all of this funding that only nonprofits have access to and then distribute it to the people who are already teaching, who already have their own yoga spaces so that black and brown people can take classes for free. And so in the beginning of this year, we launched a scholarship and grant program. We had $40,000 to give away. And one month later, Corona struck. And all of these black and brown teachers that we knew and that we support are out of work and not just yoga teachers, but also like Reiki practitioners and other energy and body workers, other people who do community organizing and teaching. And so we shifted and from the month of April and ongoing, we're offering uh, $500 stipends to people who are out of work that identify as black or indigenous. And um, we have a fund here, but we also have a fund in the state of Georgia. And from there, we just decided to use the virtual space that we're all now in Zoom or whatever meeting space. And we've been hosting ongoing weekly classes that are free. Um, and yeah, so we're finding the work as the work is finding us, I guess is the best answer I can give you. Because what we started out thinking about is essentially what we have. We have a virtual yoga studio um, with a staff of teachers, but it doesn't look like what we initially planned or even what we thought 2020 would look like. We were ready to just give away money so people could go to classes, take trainings, go on retreats. And we just had to shift that because none of those things are actually happening anyway. Yeah. I mean, I, literally like I was so unaware of the accessibility component when it came to like the wellness and healing space, I guess that had just like never been an issue for me. And I never correlated that with my skin color. Mm -hmm. I just was like, well, these, I never, I didn't have the experience of walking into a room and thinking nobody here looks like me. Mm -hmm. And to provide that is such a special experience and a special thing. Um, so I'm just more interested in like the wellness, the wellness programming that Sanctuary in the City does and right. what kind of, what accessibility means in these wellness and healing spaces. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we, that goes overlooked or like isn't noticed is that even if you go into the grocery store today and you look at the health and wellness magazine wall, like where they have all of the workout things, you're never really going to see a black person be associated with like mindfulness, meditation, yoga, it's shifting a little bit, even though yoga journal is mad problematic, there's a whole thing going on with them this week. But 
there you're just really not going to see black or brown people being depicted as practicing what we consider wellness you might see them depicted as sick you might see them depicted as playing sports but just to be in some of the practices that we know to be connected to like holistic wellness black people's images the images of brown people are excluded and what's ridiculous about about that is that most of these practices have originated in Asia and Africa, and these practices have been co-opted and capitalized, and it's a Western money grab around these practices. And for me, part of disrupting the system is stepping away from it being so transactional. Like sometimes people would say to us in the beginning, like, you can't give away classes for free and pay the teachers. Because the reality is we could give the classes away for free. There would be plenty of teachers who would offer to volunteer to teach for free. But those same people are underpaid, are underrepresented, are underfunded, um, and they still live in a capitalist system. And so a lot of people really felt like we couldn't make that model work. But we're so committed to it that, I mean, we've called it in essentially, but also people feel connected to supporting us because even for the black woman or man or person who makes $500,000 a year, $100,000 a week, <laughs> when you walk into a yoga space that has no images of anyone who looks like you, when you look on their website and there are no teachers of color, when there are things going on in your city and the yoga studios are silent on their social media, but they have something to say about every other social issue, it makes you feel like you're not wanted in those spaces. And um, that makes it hard to go there and be peaceful or to like find Zen because the other thing that's happening is that whiteness, and I'm not talking about white people, I'm talking about the concept of whiteness, is so normalized as the standard that when you fall outside of that standard of like cis hetero whiteness, thinness also, people are going to say harmful things to you because they're always trying to compare you to that standard. And so in a yoga space where it's such an intimate space, like your body is exposed, you're in vulnerable positions, to have a teacher who doesn't see you or can't recognize your experience saying harmful things, not even maliciously, but just because that's what she's socialized to do, you can't enjoy this space. You can't be in this space and be your full self and get the true benefit of the practice. And so our work is guided by that always, that we want all black and brown people to be able to step into a healing space and know that they'll be seen, know that they'll be affirmed, know that they'll be safe from harm and they can actually let their guard down because it's hard to articulate, but as a person who's practiced yoga now for 10 years and been teaching for seven of those years, it's very, it's an assault on your nervous system to step into a place where you expected to find rest and have to be on guard around your own harm. And it's happened to me more times than not when I'm in spaces that aren't led by people who look like me. And I don't think that those teachers or fellow students were being malicious, but they were being harmful and intent and impact are two different things that we have to recognize. And so we're just trying to lessen the impact. I like really appreciate hearing your experience and like, obviously right now we're hearing like so many conversations around race and around just white allyship and wanting to be there. Um, 
I just wanted to, I know we kind of talked about from a Charlotte perspective, but what does that look like in Charlotte from the perspective of a black woman? Um, What does that look like for you? So I'm going to be a little bit more left of center. I actually don't want allyship. Um, Allyship is real old to me. It's real performative. It's real like, what's the least I can do to make it look like I'm not a bad person. And so um, I'm only really interested in white people who are willing to sacrifice um, themselves and their power uh, to make a more equitable distribution. And I know that when I say that, that's scary to people because we live in a society that tells us that there isn't enough for everyone. And so we have to be in a cash grab, a food grab. I mean, that's why there was no toilet paper when COVID hit because we're told that there's not enough. So let me go and hoard as much as I can possibly hoard. And so we do that with all kinds of resources, education, money. And it's not that black people and brown people aren't hardworking. If we weren't, we wouldn't be here existing. Um, this country would it be what it is if it weren't for the labor of black and brown people since its inception. And there are still black and brown people laboring under the guise of prison when really it's just slavery. Like people are profiting from them being in these cells and working and making and building. And so I am interested in white people who realize what resources they have available to them. That might be money. That also might be a podcast. That might also be power and privilege in their workspace. I'm interested in the white people who are saying, you know what, actually, I don't have as much education as the person who works under me. And I'm going to bring to the front that they need to be promoted, even if that means that I might take a demotion, because how long have you profited from being in white skin and having less education than this person of color? And, you know, that's just one example. But, you know, within our organization, it, we, we have tons of people who are not Black, who are not Indigenous people of color, who are self-sacrificing for us all the time, building things for us, making things for us, advocating for us. And we're grateful to them and also more is needed. And, you know, I, as an organization, we had some fundraising goals to be able to get checks to the still almost 90 people who are waiting for $500 checks. And these are people who've been out of work since April, who have children and families. We've been able to give 60 people checks, but, you know, you could do the math, 75 times times 500 is several thousands of dollars. And In the beginning, when we were applying for grants, we were often turned down because they said that our work was discriminatory um, and that we weren't serving all people, so they don't give to our funds. Even though nonprofits exist all over, most nonprofits are serving a segment of a population, not all of the population. But, you know, the wellness and health of Black people is not a priority in this country, and it never has been. And so that's not new to us. But once this enter, we enter this space where there are worldwide protests and property is being damaged and whiteness, not white people, but the concept of whiteness wants that to be subsided, the d- donations and the money has been ever flowing to us over the last two weeks. Like we've raised more in the last two weeks than we've raised in six months before the corona outbreak. And so you know, I appreciate that people are giving up their resources, but often what we have seen, not necessarily in our lifetime, I think y'all are much younger than me. I feel like y'all are in y'all the like 20s, like mid 20s, 
I'll be 40 at the end of this year. So I'm a little bit, I'm, I'm probably old enough to actually be y'all's mama, which is scary. But anyway, um, what we've grown up seeing, like an in integration, because you all have always lived under integration. I have also, but like in my own family, I'm the first person not born under legalized segregation. So my parents were born, the United States was segregated. My own mother didn't go to high school with any white people until she was 16 years old. She had never gone to school with a white person, but I have aunts and uncles who always went to segregated schools. And so integration is always like heralded as this great civil rights movement victory. But in reality, white people didn't have to give up anything. And black people gave up a lot um, to be integrated, including their lives. And I'm in the place where I'm like, what are white people willing to give up? What about whiteness are you willing to release? And equally distribute power and resources because that is what's actually necessary. And so in this healing space, I feel grateful for businesses like Noda Yoga, which is a studio in North Davidson, the owner Jillian, before we um, had the pandemic, we had made an agreement with them. They were giving our nonprofit um, studio space at no charge on a regular basis and making donations to us. And that did, fell through. But still, Jillian, even with her own business closed, is constantly contributing financially and using her resources to like um, post about our things, share them with her community, and ask her community to give to us. There's another donut shop. I've actually never met the owner, but her name's Courtney, uh, Your Mom's Donuts. And last, maybe two Fridays ago, was National Donut Day. And she said that's her biggest day. And she gave us 100% of her proceeds. And so it's like, yeah, holding my hand and saying you see me is great. But holding my hand and then opening where you've stored all the things you've hoarded, whether it's money, time, resources, education, and saying, hey, open, it's open, take what you need. That's actually what is going to be required. And it would be, I would be wrong not to add that like, the space that we find ourselves in around racism and white supremacy is actually a space that holds a lot of healing for white people. Because even if you, um, if you look at the science of trauma, trauma lives in the body. And so black people have trauma of being enslaved and living through Jim Crow and segregation, but also white people have trauma of living through that. It's like you've seen the pictures of black people being lynched and they were turned into postcards and people took body parts and they mailed them. And those people have family. And even the people who, um, you know, maybe it shifted in a generation of like, my parents don't believe the same things my grandparents or great grandparents believe. That trauma of experiencing that and allowing that and witnessing that lives in white people also. And so, you know, it's great to wonder how black people can heal from um, the trauma of racism, what is going to be pivotal is white people realizing they need to heal from the trauma of it too. Because it asks you to overlook other people's humanity. It's kind of like when you think about, you know, six months ago, everyone was posting about the children in cages at the border. And that is still happening. But people moved on from it because white people knew their children were never going to be in cages. American citizens, their children will never be in a cage because they'll never have to leave their country because of something that another country created here. But people who live in Mexico and Central and South America is like, 
America has wreaked havoc in their country with wars and genocides and drugs. And so they're trying to escape to a better life and their children are being caged. And there's going to be trauma in all of us for witnessing that and not doing anything about it. And we will have to heal that part of us that could overlook the humanity of those children, watch it, and then just move on to the next thing. It's the same for like fresh water in Flint. They still don't have clean water. There's a trauma that will be in them from experiencing that. But there's a trauma that'll be in the bodies of all the people who facilitated it and upheld it and didn't do anything within their city and state. And so, you know, that that's the invitation, I think, for white people in this time is to like look at how they can heal and allow black people the spaces and the resources to heal for themselves. Because I think it's two different healings that can't happen in the same place. They have to happen in separate places. Totally. I feel like definitely for us as two, you know, young 20 somethings in Charlotte who like have a voice and have a platform and want to make an impact on the future. Like that just makes me feel very empowered to heal from that, look at the history and move forward um, in like the right direction. Um, So thank you um, for that insight. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the space to talk about it here with you guys. I think, um, the way like technology works and TV and all of that, it's done a disservice to people your age because, you know, like each of us has a responsibility to learn about the world that we're living in and what is put forward for you guys to focus on ignores everything that happened before. And so it can feel startling for younger people because it's like, well, we live in a, we, we grew up under a black president and We, you know, there's Black people all over TV and on magazines, and most of the music we listen to is Black music, and, like, my friend's married to a Black man. Like, there's all of this, like, notion that we live in a post-racial society, but you all are still existing in a society with people who navigated segregation. It's like, I don't know how old you guys' parents are, but it's like, my parents are in their 60s, so maybe that's the age of your grandparents. And my parents lived through integration, which means your grandparents lived through it, and so... It's like, what are the conversations that you're willing to have with your older family members about the part that they played or didn't play in this post-racial illusion that is created for you? And part of that is like the healing of it. Um, Because, you know, as a Black person, I know all about my parents' experience in slavery. I'm not in slavery, but in segregation and Jim Crow. My mom grew up in the South. My dad grew up in the North. They have two different experiences, but still most of those conversations were linked to them trying to teach me how to navigate the world as a black person. And one of the privileges of whiteness is that your parents don't really have to talk to you about being white. Everything is accustomed and standardized around whiteness and you get to just live. And so it's, that's part of the awakening that I mean though, around like realizing like, okay, I've been living for 25 years. I'm just guessing I'll like almost 25. I don't think y'all are 25. Um, I've almost lived for 25 years and I need to know about my parents and how they navigated race. And I need to talk to my grandparents. And if your great grandparents are still living, which they might not be great conversations, but it's still important for you to have a clear picture of your history and like, how you got to the point where you can choose to move to Charlotte and start a podcast and have whatever great things you've had in your life, but also whatever wasn't so great in your life. 
all of that's a part of the healing. And, you know, those are the kinds of spaces that we hold for the Black and Indigenous people of color is like the experience of people that are not white around racism, it varies. It varies even within Black people, depending upon the tone of your skin. The more white you look, the more acceptable you are, the darker you are, that's not so acceptable. And so even though Black people have been on TV for a long time, mostly been light-skinned Black people. It's only recently that you start to kind of see some dark-skinned Black people. And it's hard to talk about all that nuance and all our different experiences when we also have to hold space for white people to like be ashamed or feel guilty or be defensive. And so our singular and like secluded spaces are really for us to be able to lean into the ways we need to heal. My hope is that white people start to cultivate spaces for them to do that same work. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think it's definitely something that all those things that you were saying of it's aspects that we never had to consider. And even, um, my mom, who is Chinese, even her experience is very different from, um, from yours and your parents. And mm -hmm. those conversations even look very different. Um, so how do you feel that your perspective on all these racial issues, these different issues of prejudice and, um, you know, things that have been done wrong in the past. Um, how do you feel that those, your opinions on those are affected by the intersectionality of you not only being a Black person, but also a queer person? Hmm, that's a great question. I think um, in like full transparency, I only came out to my family in the last year. So for the most of my life, I lived as a straight person. Um, I was even married to a male identified person and I have two children from that relationship. And it's interesting because part of like being black for me, part of my black experience was trying not to be different in the ways that you could control. Like I obviously can't hide that I'm black. I'm also in a bigger body, so I can't hide that. Um, I mean, as much as I try, you know, I've done every diet, all the like things to like make yourself smaller. But in that way, I made myself smaller there too, because I grew up in the South. Um, I grew up at church. And so these are not things that are accepted. And what feels complex about it is that even in spaces where we're advocating for Black people and Black lives, homophobia is still going to show up and be harmful. And so, um, you know, it when you're looking at like spaces for Black people, that's still something to be considered. It's like, okay, I'm Black, but I'm also queer, so that might not work there in that space either. And so, you know, it's um, it adds complication to like life and just thinking about things. And I'll, I'll give you one example. So I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the Green Book, but it's a book that existed in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And it basically was a book that Black people passed around for when you traveled. And it told you where you could stop to eat, where you could stop to sleep, where you could get gas. Like these are safe places where like either Black people own it or it's non-Black people who are not going to harm you or try to kill you or rob you because 
the reality of the 50s, 60s, 70s, even now, is that Black people can be killed and there will be no repercussions or justice or even like pause around taking lives. And so that doesn't exist anymore, but I, I'm in a relationship and my partner is from New York. And last week we traveled, we drove by car because of COVID to New York to be with her family because they're welcoming a new baby into their family. And as we're driving, you know, we're going through North Carolina, we're going through Virginia, we're going through Pennsylvania, Jersey, like DC, all these areas. And it's a very interesting thing to try to make sure that you get gas in a major city in the state of Virginia before you get out into a rural place because it might not be safe for us as black people. And also it might not be safe for us as two black women traveling with our children by car, which, you know, that feels gross. So it makes me like a little bit emotional, but like, <clears throat> that's one of those things where um, I'm not willing to live my life in a way where I make myself small anymore, but it's also very scary. It can be very scary. And so, you know, it's just, again, racism is a real nasty beast, but so is homophobia, but also that all stems from white supremacy. And so for us to really make it safe for all people, we have to heal all of those things they're all interlinked and interwoven together because as your question pointed out, we have people living at those intersections and not all queer spaces are safe for black people. And so it's like, where, where do we actually fit in really trying to find places that are safe for ourselves and our families? And yeah, I mean, I would I mean, say the I same as far as feminism too, like, not all feminine space, all feminist spaces are safe for black women. And I don't actually identify as a feminist or lean into like the feminist movement here in Charlotte because it centers white women. And there's a million threads and groups from like the marches and all these things where it's very clear that if you aren't a white woman, they're really not even concerned with you. That's who these marches and protests and gatherings are for. I mean, wow, that's stuff that I just have never considered in my life as a cisgendered, straight, white woman. Um, so I really appreciate you for, one, you for being vulnerable with that answer and Emily for answering or for asking that question. Um, just something that, like, I live my life not even considering these, these narratives. I just live with my own privilege, and I'm just like, I mean, this is, like, eye-opening. Um, and I think it'll be eye-opening for a lot of our listeners. Um, so thank you. Um, yeah, I would also Emily's say, like, I appreciate Emily sharing about her mom being Chinese. It's like some people may look at Emily and not know that or recognize it or acknowledge it. And I'm sure if it hasn't happened, it will happen in her lifetime where someone will say something very harmful and discriminatory about Chinese people. And it's like that's her mother and you're talking about and and that's you like you're Chinese also because your mom is Chinese and whiteness allows that whiteness allows for people to make jokes make costumes of culture 
to have whole comedy shows that make fun of groups of people. And I don't think that that's something that white people have to think about. Like they don't. And when they're called on it, you will have people who will apologize and say like, oh, I didn't know, or that was wrong. I'm sorry. Thank you for calling me in. But more often than not, you'll have people say like, well, don't be so sensitive. And like, we can't say anything anymore. We can't do anything anymore. And it's like people of color, regardless of what continent they come from, have been navigating the way that whiteness belittles everything that's not white for thousands of years. And so when people start to break windows, um, I actually have to laugh at people who bring up property damage. I'm like, this whole nation is built on you coming and tearing up somebody else's stuff and looting and pillaging and doing all kinds of harmful things. So if somebody breaks a window or sets a fire, it's insured. I don't care. There's no property that is more valuable than the shift that is necessary for our humanity to continue. So we're a very young country. And it's like, yeah, we've been here for a few hundred years, but there are nations and cultures that have been around for thousands upon thousands of years. And the way that we built this nation, the way the nation continues to operate is not sustainable. The, the pandemic showed you that first, that we were not living in a sustainable way. And I was like, great, we're all on a pause. But what we didn't pause from was killing black people. And so now you get to see the full fury of black people who don't have to go to work or be anywhere who are tired because we've been told this by our mothers who were told by their mothers and their mothers and like no black people are existing on this world that haven't heard about racism in their own life. And so the same is true for all other like people, indigenous people. And so, you know, I, I would want us as a nation and especially white people to wake up to like, this has been going on for a long time and it's time for y'all to stop. Yeah. And I mean, even my family is South African and my parents grew up in apartheid regime. Mm -hmm. And so that's been something that we've been having conversations around as well of like their experience versus my experience, seeing it, you know, seeing injustice and police brutality and racial inequity and all of that. And it's, it's, they're hard conversations and they're, you know, hearing my family say, well, we didn't know any different. Um, and they, they know that that's not an excuse and having just having those difficult conversations, but they're necessary. Um, they're absolutely necessary, yeah. especially now that we're, we're in America. Right. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. Um, so how can our listeners support Sanctuary in the City, keep this momentum going behind this movement, get involved, um, all of that? Right. Um, so, you know, if people who are listening identify um, as Black, Indigenous, person of color, come to our offerings. Um, they're free. They're happening every week. They're listed on our website. Um, and, you know, donate if you're able. For people who don't identify in that way, um, the best ways to support us are to make donations and to share with other people who can make donations. We're very fortunate that we've had a lot of support in setting up our legal structure. So we're eligible for matching donations from people's jobs. And it's just like, if you have the ability and you want to give to us and your job has matching, please like give to us. You can also give to us as a sustaining member. And so, you know, you can set it up for your account to be debited on a regular basis, but those are the two main things that like sustain us. And 
for a while we used to feel guilty about like asking for money all the time, but there are billions of dollars out here in the world and we're just asking for a small portion of it so that we can keep our work going. So yeah, those are the two ways. And our website is the sanctuary in the city.org. Um, and there's a link right there for donating. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on Kelly. We so appreciate your honesty, your vulnerability and your insight. And we just like, can't wait to see what else Sanctuary in the City does and what other, other opportunities you're able to provide. And we're hopeful that we can amplify those voices as well. Well, thank y'all for having me on. I really appreciate the um, space to talk. Thanks so much again to Kelly for coming on our show and being so vulnerable and sharing so much insight. If you would like to donate or get involved with the Sanctuary in the City, all of those links will be in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening and we will see you next time. Bye, Queens.